Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Today it's all about you. This week on Instagram, I asked you what topics you wanted me to cover. What's been on your heart? What's on your mind? How can I be helpful? How can I be supportive? And you delivered. One question came in via my website on the Ask a Question tab. The others came from my Instagram stories question sticker. We have a lot to cover today, so let's dive right in. Hi, Dr. Karen. Uh, I'm just calling for I was listening to the Love um, Factually episode, and it kind of confirmed a couple things that I was kind of worried about um, when it comes to me and dating. Um, The whole men wanting fertility piece and then also um, men kind of wanting other men to want you so that they feel that you're worth something to them. And it's tough when you get to the place of kind of infertility through age. I'm wondering how do I create like a high status reality for myself when I don't have that fertility anymore? And um, it, as a result, there aren't a lot of men interested in me. If there's one in particular that I like and who's showing some interest, I want to make him more interested. Thanks. Okay. So. As the questioner was saying, she listened to my episode with Dr. Duena Welch, the author of Love Factually Books. Episode 92, we talked about the science of dating. And in episode 102, we talked about attachment styles and dating. So if either of those topics are on your mind, be sure to check them out. And what the questioner here is speaking to is what Dr. Welch has found through her research to be true not only for American men, or Western men. These are patterns and tendencies that occur in all cultures since the dawn of time. I want to preface this conversation with the reality that some of these generalities can seem frustrating. Some of them seem unfair in terms of the ways that men and women approach dating. Again, it's very deep rooted in our biology. But we need to look at what the science shows us. And Dr. Welch says, don't shoot the messenger. She's just reporting all the research she has gathered and what studies have shown. So in this case, what the question is referring to is what Dr. Welch calls her two Fs, that men are looking for fidelity and fertility. Regarding fidelity, Dr. Welch talks about being hard to get, not playing hard to get, but being hard to get. Which, if we're super into somebody, when we meet him, it feels like we're playing because we, we say, we, I don't want to play games. But we have to look to the science and we find that men like the pursuit. And we all kind of know this, but we resist it sometimes. And I get that. We don't want to play games. We want to be authentic and genuine. But we have to understand the science and also what's reasonable and realistic. And I always encourage my community to pace the relationship that not only allows him to pursue us, which he wants to do based on the science and the way that men approach dating, and it also allows us to keep our head in the game and remember 
that even if I get really excited after a couple dates, I still don't really know this person and he still doesn't really know me. We gather information when we're dating. I say it all the time in my Love Smarter, Not Harder IGTVs when I answer your questions there. And Dr. Welch also says that this pacing communicates fidelity. How? Essentially, if a woman has sex with a man quickly, he assumes that she would also be quick to have sex with other men, which would then cause him to question her ability to be faithful to him. Now, Dr. Welch does a deep dive into the science, the biology behind all this. So if you want to check that out, listen to the podcast episode by her book, Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. I know many of you have bought it, and I've heard from many of you that you have changed significantly your approach to dating based on the science, which I think is super wise and super smart, and it's definitely dating smarter, not harder. Now, as far as the jealousy piece that Dr. Welch speaks to, I'll be honest, this is the part I don't like. I get the pacing. I get the being hard to get. I think that's wise. It's smart. It's protecting our heart. It's communicating that we are worth being pursued. It's communicating what Dr. Welch called high status to the dating realm. We present ourselves as a high status to be sought after, to be pursued woman. I can get behind all that. The jealousy part, I cannot get behind, but I will let you know what the science says because I think it's important Whether or not I think it's a great idea, if the science says that that's how we're wired, I think it's important that we have this information available to us. So I'm going to share a little bit from Dr. Welch's book here. And this section is called Be Hard to Get, Use Jealousy. Dr. Welch is writing in the first person here. She says, I used to think women created jealousy from immaturity or mean-spiritedness, but I was wrong. In studies when women intentionally rouse the green-eyed monster, revenge is rarely the motivator. Instead, they cultivate jealousy to discern the strength of their lover's feelings and enhance his commitment. Her citation for this study is from David Buss's The Dangerous Passion, Why Jealousy is as Necessary as Love and Sex. She goes on to say, If you think about it, There aren't too many effective ways to figure out whether you're more interested than your guy is. Dr. Buss notes that men tend not to stay attracted to women who ask straight out, do you really love me? That comes off as clingy, dependent, and off-putting. In dating, sometimes total honesty backfires, so women have found a way to ask without asking. Dr. Welch notes that Dr. Buss and others have studied hundreds of dating and married couples, and they find that men's most common response to thinking another man was their rival was to lavish time, attention, jewelry, dinners, etc. on the women they didn't want to lose. Now, like I said, this jealousy bit is not my favorite part (laughs) of the science, But I think it speaks to, again, presenting yourself as high status and getting back to the question, how can we be high status if we say, I don't know that a lot of other men are interested in me? And that's where you go to presenting yourself as high status by being hard to get. You don't commit yourself emotionally, your time, your energy, any of it before he asks you to be exclusive. If you give too much of yourself too soon to the relationship, 
then he knows he has you. There's no time for him to go, huh, I wonder what she's doing when we're not together. I wonder if she's seeing other people. That alone can create enough tension in the person that you're interested in to perhaps get him to go, huh, I don't want her seeing other people. I better make sure that I ask her to be exclusive. And if he's not doing this, then you continue to have your independent life and you enjoy your time together, but you don't give him the impression that he is the only person you're connecting with. And in fact, Dr. Welch has a script for how to let the person that you're interested in know that you are in fact not his and his alone. And she says, quote, you tell him, I'm having a good time getting to know you, but I should tell you to keep things honest that I always date around until a man I'm seeing asks me to become exclusive. I'm not suggesting you feel that way about me, but I want to let you know that I am seeing others and I understand that you may be dating around too. And getting back to the frustration that a lot of us have on the dating scene where it feels like we're playing games and I just want to be honest and upfront. Well, that bit of communication is quite direct and quite genuine. And yet it also presents us as high status women, which we are. And getting to the fertility element of the question There are certainly some realities here. As we get older, if a man is definitely interested in becoming a father, he may not want to date a 45-year-old woman because likely her eggs are not as healthy and the chances of her getting pregnant have begun to diminish quite a bit. I mean, I think our, our fertility rate even starts dropping in our late 20s. So this is a battle that we face as we try to beat the biological clock. And I speak to this in episode... 48, a race against time, beating the biological clock, techniques from cognitive therapy. And this is a topic I will continue to speak to because it's something that I've personally dealt with and uh, many in my community struggle with this. It's not easy. And you guys know I met Dan when I was 40. So if he were looking for someone who was at the prime of her fertility, he wouldn't have dated me. And that's just the reality. Now, we can work around this by considering a guy who already has kids, and that's an option. And I speak to being a stepmother in other episodes, and that's something that's absolutely possible. Dr. Welch also recommends considering an older man. Her husband is, in fact, 14 years older than her, and she was intentional about this. She'd been married before. She had a child. She was 35 when she was back on the dating scene, and she knew she would not be, at 35, considered young and beautiful to a 25-year-old. But... To a 50-year-old, she would absolutely be considered young and beautiful. So she created a strategy and it worked for her. She also mentions that as women age, we can still appear to be fertile even if we're not. It's really not that we have to necessarily be able to procreate because some men, like I spoke to before, have their own kids already or maybe they're not interested in having children. But yes, men are biologically drawn to a woman's physique if she appears to be fertile, which is why the beauty industry sells us potions and lotions and serums to stay young and lovely looking. We can resist this because it's the influence of the patriarchy or we can say, mm, There appears to be some biology at work that's pretty hardwired in us. So how about I just do the best I can to be fit and healthy? Interestingly enough, getting back to evolutionary psych and anthropology, men do prefer an hourglass shape. 
Dr. Welch cites research by Dr. Devendra Singh, which found that men worldwide indicated that they found women who had a waist that was 30% smaller than their hips to be more attractive. This 0.7 ratio between the hips and the waist has been found to be true, like we said, worldwide and even by blind men who have never seen a woman. Talk about hardwired preferences. And you won't find it surprising that when we look at fertility rates, women who have a 0.7 waist to hip ratio are more likely to be the most fertile. Again, some of this we can't fight, even if we don't like it. As Dr. Welch says, please don't shoot the messenger. So again, the point is, it's not that we have to literally be able to procreate because people find love in their 80s, but we do want to present ourselves as high status And clearly, based on the science, part of that entails paying attention to our physical appearance. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns, will target limiting beliefs and thought patterns, We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals. And we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. Okay, now for some of the questions and topics that you presented to me this week via Instagram. The first topic is how to break free of enmeshment when you're a single childless woman without the guilt. Last week on the podcast, we talked with Mary Beth Samich, LPC, about enmeshment and differentiation and establishing boundaries as part of differentiating from our family of origin. And we get into that in depth in episode 108. So check that out if you haven't. But yeah, when you're single and childless, it's kind of harder because there's a natural breaking away from your family of origin when you get married. And then you have that buffer, which is your spouse. And so you can say things like, yeah, well, this Thanksgiving, we have to go to my husband's house, right? Because his family needs to, we need to be fair and his family needs to have the chance to see us as well on the holidays. Or when you have kids, there's like, the natural barrier of, oh, well, I have Johnny's this or that or Susie's this or that. So all these realities end up carving out differentiation by their very existence, that you have other relationships in your life that are your priority now. But to the questioner's point, yeah, when you're single and you don't have kids, you don't have those natural barriers in place. But I think it's an opportunity because If we differentiate only because we have a husband now and we have kids now, we're not really doing the intentional work of differentiating. That's why being single, one of the perks is that we can do that grown-up work with our family of origin. And so I recommend here just starting to create boundaries. And she mentions in the topic, I'd like to create boundaries without feeling guilty. Now, that's going to be very hard because if you come from an enmeshed family, there have been a lot of messages suggesting that anytime you do something apart from the family or if you don't manage your mother's emotions, for example, that you are betraying the family. 
and it's not fair and it's not loving. But those are the messages that we receive when we're in enmeshed families. So the differentiation process, creating boundaries will likely produce some guilt initially, but that's okay. It's going to be hard and that's also okay. It's such a worthwhile pursuit. Differentiating from your family of origin doesn't mean you cut them off and say, forget it. It just means that you establish appropriate boundaries. You're able to, as an adult woman, even though you don't have a spouse and kids, you're able to sometimes take a trip over Christmas if that's what you want to do. And you present the information very matter-of-factly. You're not asking permission. You're a grown-up. You're an adult woman, and you're able to make plans and decisions for your life and choices. So you just tell them lovingly, warmly, and very matter-of-factly. And then you have to stay strong. They may try to manipulate. They may try to guilt you into changing your mind. And you have to just sit with being uncomfortable. When we establish boundaries initially, it's just uncomfortable, but we can tolerate it. We're mature enough to handle it. And we don't let the conversation escalate to where it becomes a battle because it's not a battle. Once you're an adult, it's your life and your choices. And if they can't respect that, that's unfortunate, but it shouldn't make you feel like you're being a bad son or daughter when you're just being a grown up living your own independent life. We'll revisit this topic at the end of the month when Dr. Jamie Zuckerman joins me on the program. We're going to be talking about boundaries. So sit tight. We'll have more for you on this topic in just a couple weeks. The next subject you wanted me to cover was letting go of relationships you thought were the one. And you gave me a little love. Absolutely love, love, love your podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for the feedback. And as far as letting go of relationships, breaking up is so hard, especially if you thought you were with your person. And I cover this in episode 97, Heartbreak is Hideous, Here's Help. Also, way back in episode 11, I tackle this subject. It's called Bad Breakup, Take Charge of the Pain. And I share one of, well, the worst breakup of my life, which was with Dylan, Crazy, wasn't even with my ex-fiance. It was Dylan who was after the ex-fiance. And actually the intro music to the podcast is from a song I wrote. Well, actually one of many songs I wrote about my heartbreak with Dylan. I think that could be helpful for you. Also, episode 12, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Can we get better at it? And I speak with British breakup coach Laura Yates. So those three episodes, I think, can be helpful for you, and especially the most recent one in which I talk about the science of heartbreak, because we really do become hooked on. Neurologically speaking, love is a drug, (laughs) and I speak to that in that episode. So check that out. I think that'll be helpful. Also, at the end of the month, Dr. Rhonda Freeman joins me. She is a neuropsychologist. And we will be digging even deeper into understanding the brain science of relationships, painful breakups, trauma, abusive relationships, all of that, and what we can do to take back our brains, essentially, to rewire them once again in a more positive, healthy, and whole manner. The next topic was also about breakups. So that is clearly something many of us are dealing with right now. The next subject is difficulty knowing what's acceptable slash normal in a relationship versus me being picky. 
So I address this topic in depth in my book, chapter three, we talk about what I heard many times over the years that I must be way too picky and that's why I'm still single. And I absolutely take issue with this. I think that women get accused of being too picky when they have high standards. And why would we want anyone to not maintain high standards when they're looking for the person with whom they plan to spend the rest of their life? Sounds like a bad idea to me, but we get this pressure and sometimes we can start doubting ourselves, which I think is what's happening here. So Dr. Welch also talks about this in her book, Love Factually, and she says it's really as simple as this. Are you looking for something in a partner that you're not willing to be or give yourself? Meaning, if I'm looking for someone who's kind and warm and respectful and driven and intelligent and works on their own personal growth and development, and if I am all those things myself and I want to give kindness and warmth and intelligence and connection and commitment to a relationship, I'm willing to be those things and I am willing to give those things to the relationship, then I'm not being too picky simple as that. And I'll add as someone who had to wait quite a while to meet my person that when we want something extraordinary and epic, we oftentimes have to be willing to wait for it. Next concern, how to cope with his ex-wife when there are kids involved. In episode 64, I speak with Kendall Rose, author of The Stepmoms Club, how to be a stepmom without losing your money, your mind, and your marriage. Also, more recently on the podcast, I interviewed Christina and Gannett of Radical Stepmoms podcast. We talked about grieving the life you thought you'd have in episode 105. I also was interviewed by Christina and Gannett on their podcast, so you can check that one out if that would be helpful as well. But essentially, when you step into a relationship when there are kids involved, you have to put the kids first. The kids didn't ask for this. The kids are grieving. This can be very chaotic for children, especially if their parent is dating a bunch of people. And frankly, these arrangements entail a lot of adults having to be grownups. And that will mean sometimes just biting your tongue and taking the high road. And oftentimes things won't be fair, but you do your very best to be polite and kind and cooperative with the ex because the kids are already suffering and they shouldn't be put into a position to have to choose or take sides or be made to suffer any more than they already are. We want to protect the kids and advocate for the kids as much as we can. That being said, it's a very serious role that you take on if you become a stepmother. And research shows that stepmothers are less well-received than stepfathers. If you move forward in this relationship, I would absolutely encourage you to avail yourself of all sorts of resources for stepmothers. Specifically, the book Step Monster is fantastic. It's written by Wednesday Martin. And be clear about the reality of the statistics. Second marriages with children involved don't make it 70% of the time. So there are some very real challenges for blended families indeed, but as a stepmother who loves her stepchildren and loves her blended family, I can assure you there are many, many rewarding moments and nurturing moments and loving moments. There's a lot of love to be had in a blended family. Next issue, 
how to create and stick to boundaries. We already spoke to that a little bit, but again, because this is on your heart, I'm excited to let you know that we'll be talking more in depth about this with Dr. Jamie Zuckerman at the end of the month. Next up, how to control ruminating thoughts. You're speaking my language now. (laughs) I'm just going to give you a handful of the episodes in which I've discussed how to take charge of our thoughts. Most recently in episode 107, it's called Take Charge of Your Negative Thoughts, Part 2. Techniques from REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, is my go-to to to make sure that I am thinking rationally, which is going to help me feel better because my thoughts My beliefs are grounded in rational, realistic ways of thinking. In episode 100, Take Charge of Your Thoughts, Take Charge of Your Life, I look at this same kind of thing, looking at the beliefs that fuel the meaning that we attribute to situations, which fuels the way that we think about situations, which then fuels the feelings that we have about situations. And all of this is in our control in ways that we oftentimes don't realize. So check that one out as well. In episode 77, Take Charge of Your Negative Thoughts, Part 1, I speak with psychotherapist Kate Lambie about techniques from ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And I had the honor and privilege of interviewing the creator of ACT, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, in episode 65, entitled, Liberate Your Mind to Address Depression and Anxiety, And I called it that because Dr. Hayes was promoting his new book called Liberate Your Mind, which also lets you examine these voices in your head, the the ruminating thoughts that are often so critical and disparaging. He calls this the dictator within, and we all have it, that critical voice. So how do we manage that? How do we harness that and stop beating ourselves up with that critical voice? So Dr. Hayes speaks to that with so much compassion and authority, of course, because he created the therapy. So I think you'll get a lot out of that episode as well. Next up, how to handle being ghosted. Well, I have an entire episode about that. It's way back. It's episode 30. I called it ghosting, cowardice or kindness. And I share my thoughts on ghosting in general. And I share two times from my dating past when I was also ghosted. So check that out. And I hope it's helpful. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my love smarter, not harder IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. Next topic, how to not get physical during the early stage of dating. To address this question, I'll refer us back to the work of Dr. Welch. Episode 92, I think, will be most helpful for this one where we look at the science of dating and basically... It's easy to get ahead of ourselves when we're excited, like we talked about earlier in the program. So we have to have the rationale in place. And if we believe truly that keeping things at a slower pace benefits us in the long run, then I think we can have more buy-in, so to speak, that we believe that waiting benefits the potential for the relationship. It certainly benefits us. It protects our heart. And it presents ourselves 
to the dating community as a high status woman. If we fully believe that that's true, I think it makes it easier for us to keep ourselves from getting ahead of ourselves regarding the emotional and the physical. Episode 92, The Science of Dating with Dr. Duena Welch. Next subject, career moves for single girls. When to stay and when to leave. That's a great topic and I haven't done anything on that. I know when I was a professor at one university five years in, I realized it was time for me to make a move. And I think the short answer is, and obviously this is a topic we could devote an entire episode to, but the short answer here is, are you feeling that you're being appreciated? Are you feeling that this is a place where you want to continue to build your career, where you want to continue to invest because your career is a big investment of your time and your identity and who you are? And to me, you give a job a bit of time. You don't just bounce after the first year because oftentimes it takes a couple years to kind of get into your groove. But for example, when I was at one university for five years, it became clear that I loved the students, but I didn't feel that the administration was a place where I could really thrive and be the fullness of what I wanted to do as a professor. So then I I had a colleague there initially and she had gone to another university and then she called me and said they the, the new university was looking for more professors and would I be interested in interviewing? And that's what happened. So I think it has a lot to do about, do you feel appreciated? Do you feel that it's a good fit for your identity and your career goals? And once you've given it a bit of time, then I think it's fair to go, I don't know that this is a good fit. And then you do want to move because, man, it, there's nothing more. Well, there's plenty of things that are heartbreaking. But one of the things that's very heartbreaking is to spend so much of our lives and our blood and our sweat and our tears in our job and not feel that it is the right fit for us. That is very painful. It's another type of frustration that we want to try to avoid. You know, I talk so much about the good fit in a relationship and there's also a good fit in a profession. And that's also a very important concern to be considering as we move through life. Next question, how to ask a partner to attend individual therapy? I would actually probably not ask a partner to attend individual therapy. I would suggest we go as a couple. That would be the first move. I think that would be less threatening for someone to receive that suggestion as opposed to you need therapy. A lot of people still have resistance to therapy. And even though it can be coming from a beautiful, pure place, I mean, I find that all the time because people will talk to me even like at a cocktail party or something. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, you should see a therapist about that. And sometimes even now in the new millennium where we have so much awareness about and the importance of our emotional well-being and that we need to get checkups from time to time, the way we get our teeth checked twice a year. But some people still kind of bristle. So I personally, if I were dating someone and I believed that he needed to do some individual work, I would suggest we would go as a couple. And then as we establish rapport, because the individual stuff is going to be affecting your relationship as a couple anyway. So as you establish the rapport with the therapist that could be a much safer environment for you to say to your partner, hey, I think maybe some of that is individual work that's probably maybe best done for you to do with a therapist on your own. You could say that in the context of a counseling session with that third party, the therapist being there. And I think that may be a less threatening context and an environment where your partner may be better able to receive your suggestion. 
Another question about boundaries. So I'm so glad we're talking about that again with Dr. Jamie Zuckerman coming up in just a few weeks. Next topic is the challenges of finding true love after 40 and how to deal with the waiting period. So I would recommend my book, Single is the New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right for the waiting period. I talk a lot about not being what I call a lady in waiting. We don't want to put our life on hold and live in the whens, when this happens, when I meet him, when, when, when. We want to thrive now in the life that we have today. So that's my recommendation for the waiting period. Also in episode 103, the title of it is, Can I Find Love Over 40? And it's a love and life Q&A episode, kind of like this one, where I'm addressing your concerns and your questions. And I speak to that question specifically in that episode. So I hope that will be helpful for you. Next question, how to move from child-free to a serious relationship with a man who has a child? And yeah, I spoke to that with Kendall Rose, as I mentioned before, the author of The Stepmoms Club, and then with the radical stepmoms, Christina and Gannett. I also appeared on their program. I think I mentioned that a moment ago. But that would be a great episode because we spoke specifically about being a woman who's in her 40s without kids and then stepping into a romantic relationship and then marriage with a man with kids. And again, their podcast is called Radical Stepmoms, and you can find it anywhere you find podcasts. And I speak in depth to that issue there. But I will definitely be covering this more and more on the podcast because a lot of us who remain single in our 30s and then into our 40s, we will end up in a step family at some point or we'll have a step family relationship. The research shows this is from the Step Family Foundation that over 50% of American women will be part of a step family relationship to some degree. And it could be a woman has, you know, her mother passes away and then her father remarries when he's in his 80s, these sorts of things. So it's not necessarily that you will be a stepmother yourself, but over half of us will have some sort of step family connection at some point in our lives. Next subject, do you think men and women who are both single can just be friends? This is the age old question for those of us in my generation. It was the when Harry met Sally question. Can you really just be friends? I, that's a rough one. <laughs> From my experience, there's always been some energy on one side or the other. Either she secretly is crushing a little bit on him or he is secretly crushing a little bit on her. My best guy friends have all been gay across the board every last time, maybe because I have two older brothers. And so I don't really look for heterosexual guys to be friends with because I have that friendship component with my brothers. And it's just safer because, like I said, my experience, usually someone's crushing. And so when I look for that male friendship, I don't even mean to. I mean, this was happening when I was in college. And at that time, even some of these guys that I'm best friends with were not out yet. So it's not something I intentionally did, but I do recommend it. <laughs> I do love the uh, Will and Grace relationship. I actually have a podcast on that. Episode 31, I called it the Will and Grace effect, gay boy, straight girl love. And I invited one of my gay boy besties to join me on the program. And we just talked about the lovely and unique and precious relationship that we have. And that, of course, has been depicted in TV with Will and Grace. Next concern, dating fatigue, how to put yourself out there after so much rejection. That is an ongoing struggle that people who are single for a long period of time in their adult life understand in ways that other people just don't. 
how you get your hopes up and then only to have this relationship also tank. It's very, very demoralizing. And I speak to that in my book, of course, so I recommend that. And I'll just continue talking about it. Of course, I recommend any of my episodes, which there are many, with single women, women who have experienced those long, long years of dating and getting their hopes up, like I said, and then not having relationships work out. There's no magic formula for this. It's partly taking charge of your thoughts. It's partly maintaining hope. And that can be very challenging. So I don't want to minimize this at all. I think the quick response that is true, but not easy to receive. I'm not trying to say this is easy, but really, what's the alternative? We either become so depressed and despondent that love continues to evade us and then become bitter and miserable and just, like I said, entirely give up or we maintain hope. And I think that's a great question. I want to give it more time and attention and more specifics. And I want to look to the research. And so I'm going to write that down as a topic that I will give an entire episode to very soon. Next issue, the imbalance of sacrifice in relationships. Now, this is a great topic as well, which I'll probably have to give more attention to in an upcoming episode. Relationships are definitely about balance, but sacrifice will be different. Case in point, I lived in the city. My husband lived outside of of Chicago about an hour in Northwest Indiana. I was a city girl through and through, but he owned and I rented. So it made sense that I would move as opposed to him moving. That was a sacrifice. I moved into the house that he shared with his ex-wife and their neighborhood they'd lived in for 20 years. That was, that felt like a big sacrifice because I was leaving my identity and entering his world. For some people that might be too much of a sacrifice and I would recognize that and honor that, but I'd waited for so long to meet someone as extraordinary as Dan. So those sacrifices while on paper, that looked like a bit of an imbalance. He's so amazing that I was willing to do that. And I didn't step into that with a bunch of resentment. Like, okay, I'm keeping score over here. That's not fair to do. It's not loving. And I have a beautiful life here and I don't regret any of it. But yeah, there's always going to be some inequity. There's going to be things where one partner does a little bit more than the other. And I think the key is to not keep score and to recognize that you're not a victim. If you're making a sacrifice, you chose to do it. So you don't want to get build resentment and then blame your partner later. If you make a sacrifice, do it because you love your partner, because he is worth it, because you've waited for the person. And when you meet your person, you're willing to do things that you wouldn't have done for someone else who wasn't your person. But own your choice and be sure you're not resentful. I hope that helps. But like I said, I need to speak more to that as well. Okay, two more topics. The difference in the idea between masculine feminine energy versus dominant submissive roles. Okay, that's a lot to cover. Ultimately, you know my heart and that's the theme of my book is that we absolutely need to be who we are, resonate with our authenticity and approach dating from that space. We don't try to be somebody else. We don't try to be whatever we think we're supposed to be to get a date, to attract someone. That being said, I will say that if we lead 
with a certain energy, we're likely to attract someone who wants that energy. So when we talk about masculine feminine energy, I believe it's very possible to be quite accomplished and driven and maybe lead with a masculine energy at work. And then when you're dating, lead with a more feminine energy if you want a more masculine partner. Because if you lead with your masculine energy in the dating realm, you may attract someone who wants a more masculine partner and he may then be bringing more feminine energy and that may not be satisfying for you if what you're looking for is, as a woman, more masculine energy. Now, as for dominant submissive roles, those typically obviously coincide with masculine and feminine energy. And again, I think it's all about what you're going for, what you're looking for. Many women have a lot of verve and chutzpah and they have this strong presence and they are never going to tone that down, nor should they. I have a chapter in my book about that. But the idea is that if you want to have that more traditional relationship, which not everyone wants, that's fine. But if you are looking for that, then you are able to, when you find someone who is safe and secure and strong, then you're able to be sassy and opinionated and have absolutely this very strong energy And that guy is not intimidated by that. He's turned on by that. He finds that sexy. And because he finds that sexy and you know that he cherishes and values and honors your strength and your opinions, when you're in the context of that relationship, you can absolutely be the full version of who you are and also lean into that feminine side, which probably hasn't always been able to be cultivated. Because oftentimes, it takes that safe strength that a real man provides to allow women who've had to do for themselves and have had to be strong and independent, to allow those women to relax a little bit and lean into their feminine side. And it's a win-win because the guy wants to provide that safety and that strength for the woman to lean into. And the woman is probably pretty tired of doing everything on her own and is ready to lean into that. I don't know if that's exactly what the person asking the question was getting at, but that's my interpretation of it. Final question. Which post-secondary courses did you teach as a prof and which were your faves? (laughs) That's a great question. I loved teaching college. I had a ball. I loved it and I miss it. That's why I want to do more speaking engagements. But of course, this year, it's a kind of a rough time to book speaking engagements. But specifically, I loved teaching about family systems. And I talked about that in episode 108 with Mary Beth Samich, LPC. We talked about enmeshment. That was my dissertation. So obviously, that was a passion point for me. I had the opportunity to create the Family Systems course at Concordia University, Chicago. They didn't even have that in the curriculum. And it was such a great opportunity for me to just construct the course from the ground up and share what I believe to be so important, which is what I shared 
like I said, in episode 108, and which I will continue to share because it's, to me, it's such important information. Also, I want to share with you that one of the reasons I did step away from academia is because in these courses I was teaching, I was thinking the entire time, I am so thrilled to be able to share this information with my students, but everyone needs to know this stuff. Like I realized that the content that I was communicating through my courses, that stuff is vital for all of us to know. So it's been a real treat to be able to basically do what I did as a professor and share it with you. Of course, I loved also counseling theories, cognitive psych. I loved lifespan development. I loved looking at the trajectory of our lives and identifying the key socio-emotional concerns at each stage of our lives. That was really fun to teach as well. I, I'm such a geek. I loved it all. <laughs> but yeah, those were my favorite courses, I would say. The family systems, the cognitive stuff, which, I mean, you guys are like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> That's what you talk about all the time on the podcast. And then the developmental stuff. And my, my doctorate's in developmental psych, so that also makes sense. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. I want to thank all of you for weighing in and letting me know what's on your heart. This was a fun episode because it really let me speak to exactly what is on your mind right now. So thank you once again for sharing where you are and what you would like me to speak to and how I can be most helpful for you. The love and life hack for this week is I'm here for you. I really can't tell you how much it means to me to know that you guys are listening and you're giving me feedback that the podcast is meeting your needs. It's helping you expand your vision, expand your thinking. You're feeling encouraged. You're feeling empowered. And that is why I do what I do. And for us to go back and forth on Instagram or when you hit me up on my website, it truly means everything to me. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. If you have 30 seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the podcast. What that does is allows other people to find us, to join our community and get that word of encouragement and empowerment. Take charge of your thoughts, take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, Make it a great week.
Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram. <laughs>